Welcome to the KBB Review Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Davis. This is another interim episode while I take a little break to catch up on the frankly shocking pile of non-podcast work that insists on having some attention. So, this is the second of our two catch-ups on interviews that previously ran on our other show, the Kitchen and Bathroom Design Podcast, and this time we're hearing all about biophilic design from Oliver Heath. Now, biophilic design, which is put simply... Uh, incorporating nature into interior design, although there's obviously a lot more to it than that, is Oliver's speciality. And we actually recorded this interview uh, about a year ago in his offices in Brighton. But when you listen to it now, it all takes on such a new meaning and it's even more relevant considering everything that's happened since March. So this was a very obvious one to revisit. And in fact, it's very prescient in the conversation that we have. Remember that you can subscribe to this podcast using a podcast app such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or Spotify by searching KBB Review or One Word. And there you can see all the previous episodes, subscribe so you don't miss new ones and leave us a very flattering review, please. Now, over to me talking to Oliver Heath. Enjoy. Oliver, thank you very much for coming on the Kitchen and Bathroom Design podcast. We're here in a very, well, we're in Brighton, in your offices in Brighton, and it is a typical British summertime day here well it's sort of early autumn really a bit unpredictable very rainy. well you know I, th- I think there's nothing more melancholy than a british seaside town in the wind and the rain is there it's, it's the absolute definition of it so we're here to talk about biophilic design and you know you are an expert in it an advocate of it an evangelist for it so i guess the obvious thing to first ask is how many times a day do you have to explain what biophilic design is to people well this is the second <laughs> but that's okay because i'm I really like the subject, so it's all right. Yeah, so basically, uh, biophilia quite literally means a love of nature, and it explains the human innate attraction to nature and to natural processes. It explains why, when we choose to go on holiday to relax and de-stress and recuperate, we choose to go to the beach, to the forest, to the mountains. You know, we know that when we're in and around nature, it makes us feel really good. So biophilic design essentially is a development of that idea, uh, and it's essentially a set of uh, patterns, as we call them, the um, different features that we can bring into buildings to enhance that connection with nature. Essentially, there are three parts to it. There is what we call the direct connection to nature. Mm. So this is how we connect with real forms of nature, like plants and trees, natural light, fresh air, water. There is the indirect connection, which I think is particularly important to interior designers. And that's how we mimic or evoke a feeling of nature using natural materials, colours, textures, patterns and technologies. Mm -hmm. And there's also this idea of a human spatial response. So this essentially is how we create spaces that are exciting and stimulating and aspirational, you know, spaces that you really want to go and be in, but also to recognise that we need to create spaces that relax, recuperate and restore us. So essentially, we have what's known as the 14 patterns of biophilic design. And it's about picking and choosing the different elements that support the intended activity of the space rather than trying to shove all 14 of them in. And there's, 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 this isn't just a kind of concept here, is it? There's, there's some genuine sort of research and science behind these mm. theories, aren't there? So give us an idea of what the benefits yeah. of it are for, for, you know, for having it in your residential space. Or indeed your home and your office and yeah, your yeah. workspace. Well, for me, this is what makes biophilic design just so compelling and much more compelling than any other design style in history. So it's quite a big statement yeah. that I'm going to have to yeah, go on. <laughs> okay, so, so basically, biophilic design is a human-centred and evidence-based approach to design, which means that we use research that's been carried out by environmental psychologists, 
undertaken over the last 30 years that helps to inform our connection to nature and why that might help us feel better. So essentially what the research is that that we collate here at Oliver Heath Design suggests is that when we bring elements of nature into buildings, it can help to de-stress us. So, So it prevents stress from building up because nature, as we all know, makes us feel good. It can also help to recuperate us to help us to recover from exhausting tasks that are either mentally or physically tiring. So these are both really important things. Now, essentially, if we kind of scale back a little bit, what we forget is just how much the spaces we surround ourselves in impact on our lives. In fact, we spend 90% of our lives indoors. So, of course, as any designer will know, the space that you surround ourselves in is going to have a dramatic impact on your physical, mental and emotional states. So what we do is we look at how we can enhance that connection to nature as a means to make people feel less stressed, more calm, more relaxed, Mm -hmm. to help them feel more positive, more open, more optimistic. And by putting people in that better state of mind, we can much better realise the intended outcome of that building. Mm. So the research over the last 30 years have been undertaken in different building typologies. So in the workplace, it's been shown to improve productivity by 6%, improve uh, creativity by 15%, and reduce absenteeism. In retail environments, it's been shown to increase customer dwell times, uh, increase the perception, the value of goods, uh, and increase customer rates of return. In uh, healthcare environments, it's been shown to improve recuperation rates by 8.5%. And actually, when patients recuperate, in natural sunlight, it can reduce their intake of a pain care medication by 22%. So, and also in schools as well, it's been shown to uh, improve productivity and improve test results. So across all sorts of building typologies, that improved connection to nature has been shown to reduce costs, mm-hmm. negative things like absenteeism and staff turnover, but also to improve outcomes, things like engagement and productivity and creativity. So are we sort of rewinding design a little bit here? To, is the whole point of this to go back to a, to a time when, we, when we, would, we did this naturally by the nature of, of the building materials that we used and the, the technology that was available to us? Yes, exactly. I mean, essentially, it's an evolutionary design ethos that mm. looks at how humans have evolved in and around the natural environment and looked at the cues for, for the things that made people feel comfortable and secure. So one nice idea is called the Savannah Theory. And what it suggests is that when you look out over healthy natural environments from a point of prospect and height and safety, and when you see that that is a healthy, lush, living environment that's thriving and surviving, it can actually have the ability to reduce heart rates and blood pressure levels. And humans can immediately, as a result of this Savannah Theory uh, hypothesis, um, the suggestion is that humans can immediately understand an environment that can support life and equally to recognise one that's potentially threatening. Mm -hmm. So our job as biophilic designers is to create spaces that immediately suggest that the space you're walking into is one where people can not just survive, but also thrive and flourish. This is quite a subconscious thing you're appealing to as well, isn't it? I mean, there's an aesthetic pleasingness to this kind of environment. Mm -hmm. I guess you're aiming for a part of the brain here that doesn't really quite know it's being stimulated. Yeah. Uh, Essentially, you know, we we like to say that biophilic design is the visual aesthetic of healthy buildings. Mm. You know, when you when you see a building that can support plant life and that it's flourishing, then then there's the immediate suggestion that humans can equally flourish. So it's that nice visual connection. 
But equally, there is a neuroscientific benefit that suggests that actually, you know, when we're in forests, when we're in woods, when we're in nature, we feel good. You know, it's been proven time and time again to have multiple benefits to you. So we're drawing on those experiences to uh, create an improved emotional response to the space that's directly in front of you. Conceptually, I think it's fantastic because, Mm -hmm. you know, it appeals to, to me personally, but I love the idea that it's contrasting so much with this kind of incredibly industrial, incredible urban mm. trend that came out you know, not long ago, and everything's well, concrete. Well, this, this urban glass trend and steel and actually started at the Industrial Revolution. It was yeah. at that point that we said, yeah, let, let, let's turn our backs on the natural environment, let's move into cities, let's live in these dense urban jungles that are geometric and harsh and overcrowded and noisy and smelly and poor air quality. And now we're recognising just how detrimental yeah. those those super uh, active, stressed-out environments are for us. And, you know, we can live in them. doesn't mean that we actually deliver our best selves from them. Pre-industrial revolution, I guess, as well, we were mimicking nature in a lot of the architecture and the design that we did because of the materials that we used, obviously wood being the main one. But the moment we discovered the ability to kind of go up into the sky several stories, everything became square because mm-hmm. it's got to stay up there. Mm-hmm. Whereas technology's moved on to the point now where it doesn't necessarily have to be yeah. that way. Well, so biomorphic forms, you know, shapes that remind us of nature, are one of the key attributes mm. of biophilic design. So creating columns that remind us of trees creates a sense of sort of fractal diversity. You know, the, the shapes literally that you see in nature as one trunk uh, splits into branches and then into smaller twigs and then onto leaves is that kind of sense of fractal shapes and forms that we find very pleasing. So uh, conceptually, this is great. But you've got to make a living at this, mm-hmm. right? So how does this actually work on a practical day-to-day basis? Well, it's sort of interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, as a, as a culture, we've been buying design for hundreds of years without any evidence to it at all. Mm-hmm. It's just somebody's opinion that this looks good, this is happening, that yeah. isn't. There's no evidence to support it actually delivers on the intended function, whether it's a workplace or a hospital or a school so now we've got all this research that says, actually, if you improve natural light, it can improve rates of learning. You know, if you, if you include views onto trees, it can help people to recuperate, make them more productive. So we've got all this evidence. So I think what's interesting is that we have this evidence-based approach that really demonstrates the value of what we can bring as designers to our clients. Whereas before, it's just like, well, I've done this and it worked out quite well. And I expressed, you know, somebody's identity or, or their power But actually, you know, it's a bit of a miserable place to work because you're just kind of like all the people working or living in that space are just kind of like being crushed by overwhelming brand identity or brand values that aren't actually being experienced by the people in that building. So it's quite a different approach, really. Um, So when somebody comes to us, it's probably because they recognise that they have a building that there is a problem with, that, that, you know, people come to work from them. They don't work very well. They take a lot of sick leave. Maybe there's a high turnover of staff. Maybe they're just not very productive. Um, And we try to investigate what the issue is. So essentially what we would ideally do is carry out pre-occupancy study. So we'd measure quantitative things like temperature, humidity, light levels, sound. We'd also do a qualitative study. And we'd ask people regularly, um, how are you feeling? You know, do you think you're being productive? Do you connect with the people around you? Do you feel sociable? Do Do you feel engaged and valued? How do you sleep at night? So quite often a building can describe quantitatively quite different to the way that people describe it. Mm. And that's quite revealing. So we'd always take that, you know, that evidence-based approach and then we'd use that evidence to inform 
the brief, essentially, because it may be that the client doesn't always know that there is this issue, or even that that issue is a building-related item. You know, they may not know why one area is more productive than another. Um, and then we'd weave that into the design, and we'd look at how people are responding to the space and look to supplement those spaces with elements of nature. One of the uh, research jobs that you've done here is you have produced white papers, and we'll, we'll put a link to the biophilia one uh, online because it's such an interesting document. Yeah. Because one of the things it lays out is very practically, but what you can do at different budgets, mm-hmm. how to actually talk to clients about this, which I think is really interesting. So it's rather than being a very conceptual thing, yeah. you're boiling it down to very practical points. And, and as you say, you have these three different elements of it. One is a very obvious one of just putting lots of plants in the room. I mean, is that? Yeah, I mean, I mean your office here has lots of plants yeah, in the yeah. room. Well, it's a rented space, so <laughs> we can't really build very much, and we, you know, we can't really paint the walls, or you know, so there's lots you can't do. Yeah, so we've been working with this carpet manufacturer interface over the last five years, and um, they've taken this biomimetic approach to their carpet tiles. They've invested a lot of money in the manufacturing and the design of their carpet tiles, um, have created ranges that literally mimic natural colours, textures, patterns, uh, and the richness that we find in nature. And from that, we've drawn biophilic design ideas, and, and they've sort of funded these research papers along with us. So it's been a really interesting partnership for us. So this particular paper that we've been looking at, it shows how you can approach biophilic design from zero cost to low cost, medium to high cost. Because there are loads of very simple things that you can do to connect with nature from a personal level. You know, you can walk to work, get some sunlight, you can walk through the park, you could move your desk close to the window. But it could be that, you know, if you're doing a design to an existing space, you you fill it with plants, you put images of nature up, or it may be that you have a more structured approach and you integrate a a planting plan, natural materials and colours and textures. Or it could be that you do some high-end stuff, you know, massive green walls, water features, rooftop gardens. So a lot of the work that we do is about making biophilic design accessible to people to to try and overcome some of those boundaries uh, and the barriers that people put up. But what I like about it is that you start with that and work backwards as opposed to designing a space and then working out where you're going to put things. And that's what makes it such an interesting concept, is that you're starting with almost the end use of it, as opposed to the architecture of it, of how that space is going to feel, rather than how it's going to function. Yeah, I mean, that that sort of um, emotional response is really important. I mean, I think inevitably as a designer, it's got to deliver on on required functionality, Mm. on, on density, on practical use. But at the same time, you know, it's very much about how spaces make you feel. And I think this is an important distinction between what we do as architectural and interior designers as opposed to a lot of other organisations. So I feel that particularly interior design is often an expression of a client's identity, maybe power, wealth, whatever. They, they want to express a message going out to the world, we are this. And you walk, you know, we've all been in those kind of big atrium spaces in London where you just look up and it's just acres of marble and you feel this tiny little ant walking through this great big powerful machine why why is that good to make anybody feel small if you're walking into a building surely you want that person to be at their best to be delivering the best thing they can to make them feel welcome and comfortable relaxed to make them feel part of an organization so we take that approach you know we we really look at how space makes you feel we take a more intrinsic approach and think, well, look, if we can make people feel less stressed, more comfortable, then they'll just be able to think more clearly, they'll be more open, more positive, more optimistic, more likely to share an idea. Hmm. Uh, and from that sharing of ideas can come all sorts of things. Well, let's talk residential now, because obviously our thing here is kitchens mm-hmm. and bathrooms, and they are the rooms where 
very communal spaces in terms of kitchens, in terms of bathrooms. They're very kind of personal spaces. Yeah. So let's talk uh, kitchens now. How how would biophilic design apply to someone who's got to sit down and design a kitchen for somebody? Yeah, well, I mean, I'd start by saying it's really about human-centred design. You know, biophilic design and that connection to nature is just one of the tools that we use. Um, so when we take a more human-centred approach, it is about, you know, what are all the sort of physical and mental and emotional issues around that space? So uh, there's, of course, an awful lot of practicalities that need to be slotted into the design of a kitchen space. Um that need to be met, but also the fact that it is, you know, it's a very sensory space. Mm. Uh, if you think about the sensory spaces in the home, the journey that we have through the home, think of all the amazing inputs that we have in the kitchen. Um, you know, the sensory quality of touching materials, the water, the sound, the steam, the, the frying of food, the chopping, um, the methodical therapeutic qualities of all that tactile sensation. And you think, well, quite a rich environment that actually it goes far beyond just specifying the most expensive marble or a particular type of drawer mechanism whatever mm. so we we really think about the impact that space will have um it may be that we are talking about the light that comes into the space how that changes throughout the day it might be about the uh, acoustic issues and whether it's noisy and clattery or whether it disturbs other people in the rest of the space it might be about water quality and how we filter water, or is there an easy way to keep people hydrated? It might be about how you stand and move and the ergonomics, the temperature, humidity. And it might also be about those biophilic qualities. You know, how do we introduce natural materials into this space? That for a lot of people is actually quite a creative space, a space where they do actually enjoy spending time, a space where they are creative, a space where they connect with things where, you know, most of the rest of the day, we're just tapping away at a plastic keyboard. You know, but here, you're touching real things that have grown. Well, uh, and that, that's a real opportunity. I think kitchens, obviously, historically, are places where people gather. They gather around the fireplace, mm. they gather around the stove. This is the kind of thing that you, you know, very much that you're talking about. What I find slightly paradoxical about kitchens, and when we talk about them in this way, is that there's a real trend at the moment for very natural materials, natural stone and, and as you mm. say, marbles and wood and which is your very biophilic approach. But obviously it's still done in a very kind of angular, mm-hmm. square way a lot of the time. And one of there's another designer, Johnny Gray, who he always talks about corners. And he says corners trigger your, fight, your flight or fight mechanism because people, your, your brain doesn't like corners. Sharp, a bit dangerous. Yeah. yeah. So there's this kind of part of it which fit very much into this whole concept mm-hmm. of, of you know, gathering people together in, in a mm. communal space, natural materials, eating, cooking, as you say. But then there's other parts of it that are very kind of stark and square and yeah. you know, f- feel very kind of against this concept. Traditionally, probably we sat around fires and we cooked around these, these, these kind of elements of nature. Uh, interestingly, we've just written a new white paper all about how biophilic design can enhance a sense of community. Mm. And the paper has been written with the workplace in mind. But I think a lot of these ideas are easily transferable into the home. It's about trying to bottle that wonderful moment where you're sitting around a campfire and you feel the warmth and you hear the sound, the crackling of the, 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 the fire, and you see the kind of beautiful rhythmic patterns of the flames and the smell of the fire, and you feel the warmth and the safety coming from that fire. So lots of very rich sensory moments. And the point of this white paper is really how do we bottle that idea? 
uh, and, and capture a wonderful sense that we all feel when we're sitting around a fire and have those wonderful, warm conversations with people. How do we capture that and bring it into buildings? Kitchen is obviously a wonderful place to do it because we've got all those sensory inputs that are, are quite therapeutic. They're in a way distracting, but it's also about a shared connection around a, a, a human emotive experience of Wow, doesn't that taste amazing? Oh, that smells brilliant. You know, I love the feel of that beautiful timber tabletop. So I think nature is this wonderful thing that can not just kind of soothe us, but also bring us together. And think about it in quite a wide way, because this is really what we're talking about, kind yeah. of a shared experience and sensory inputs, and the fact that we're both feeling the same thing as we hear and sound and smell and taste that food. So... You know, I sort of thought, wow, that's, that's an interesting opportunity. How could the design of a kitchen really help to bring people together? And a fire, fire does that. And essentially, you know, the modern kitchen is, is a kind of radically technological mm. advancement of that. Because this savannah, the, the savannah concept you talked about earlier on is very, I, I guess, attuned to the open plan concept of how kitchens work. You, know, you open the entire back of the house out, you can see across your garden. I mean, that's a very, that's a big trend mm-hmm. as well. Um, but I, I love the idea of, of, you know, a lot of kitchen designers listening to this will be thinking, well, we, we do do light and we do do, you know, communal areas. So this is not a new thing. I guess yeah. you're sort of putting a, new, a name to something they already do. But I love the idea that you you kind of build it in at the beginning of the conversation. I think that's the yeah. difference. Rather than it coming in at the end thinking, right, where are we going to put the pot plants? If yeah, you yeah. like, It's right for the very beginning. And it's something to talk with the client about at the very beginning. Mm. To talk very bluntly about if you're a professional designer, you want to have that USP, that thing that you can talk about that mm. makes you sound different than the guy down the road. Well, hopefully um, deeper and more rich in terms of a human experience mm. of space. Like I said, you know, we spend so much time of our lives indoors. Why, why shouldn't we be looking to maximise our human benefit from those spaces? And, and essentially, you know, it's what a fascinating question. How can a space make you feel better? Mm. Well, that's good. You know, I mean, I think all, all of us who studied design at some point wanted to design spaces that had a dramatic impact on people. And how much more do you want than to, to just make somebody feel as good as possible with the design that you're delivering? Flip to the bathroom because it's the, the exact opposite is true because it's a very personal space on the whole. You know, it is not, a not com- my family. Yes, <laughs> it's a very social space still. <laughs> but it's a very communal space. Yeah. But the, but there tends to be much more kind of organic shapes in there. Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously there's a lot of water, uh, and the, the way that you approach the use of that room is completely different again. But but it does lend itself more to either a bathing in a pool in the middle of a forest kind of yeah. feeling about the thing, doesn't it? But sometimes bathrooms can be very stark and white and square tiles mm. and, you know, the, the, the don't fit. I was going to say, this. they leave you feeling a little bit cold. Yes. Well, you, know, you know, it's sort of lacking a sort of sensory richness. So what, so what would you do that was different then? If you, if you were going to come and design a, bath, a biophilic bathroom, what would it look like? Yeah. The biophilic bathroom, of course, again, is a very sensory experience. You know, there aren't many rooms where you take all your clothes off and <laughs> cover yourself in water. So... Um, the opportunity to to relax and help somebody to recuperate is is more evident there than anywhere else. And equally, the opportunity to stimulate and awaken somebody first thing in the morning. So, you know, bathrooms do have to play these dual roles in, in many spaces. So, again, uh, you know, it's about maximising natural light. It's about the acoustics of the space. You know, thinking about, you know, do you really want that? over loud electric fan kicking in or do you want to find something that's a little bit calmer how do you accentuate the sound of water what are the sensory inputs what does it smell like how does the moisture play out 
could you, you know, introduce natural materials or sensory contrasts? You know, what is it that enriches the spaces? Um, we often talk about a sort of sensory journey that we experience as we move through a space from the front door as you walk in. And what are those sensory inputs that starts to define the space and your experience of it and your awareness of it and the value that it brings to your life? When you step into a bathroom, of course, you may have stepped off carpet or timber floorboards onto stone or porcelain tiles. You might have a fluffy bath mat. You've got the warmth of the water, the scents of the soaps or the bath oils. You know, all this amazing richness to play with. Um, and I think there's a real opportunity. And we've just been working with Jebberet, who've been writing um, a sensory design guide, all about the kind of future bathrooms. Um, not necessarily just in the home, but also in, in commercial settings. And the enormous value that actually play for people's personal recuperation. Because the sad truth is, in an awful lot of workplaces, there are very few places for people to sit and recuperate. Yeah. So they see the bathroom as a real opportunity of somewhere that could just help people just to recover for a moment to have a quiet moment to themselves just to sit and just recuperate get back out there so you know it does play a really valuable role in the home as well as in more commercial settings it's, it's how you can incorporate this this concept at, at different budgets this is what i want to mm. sort of come back to a little bit here because obviously if you've got loads of money you can kind of build these things in and, and you can literally get the most natural materials because they usually tend to be quite expensive when you read some of the literature on this it's even things like just what colour you choose, mm-hmm. because the different spectrum of colour triggers different responses in your brain, some of which are you know, green being the obvious one, that are part of this concept that just they, they naturally make you feel a certain way, even though you don't really know why. Yeah, yeah, I mean, this for me is quite exciting as a designer, is recognising that biophilic design isn't just about adding plants. And that's what most people think it is. You know, is this, you know, how do you mimic or evoke a feeling of nature? That's kind of amazing. And I mentioned this idea of biomorphic design, you know, using patterns and shapes that remind us quite literally of nature, whether it's tree-like forms or leaf-like shapes on tiles. Um, It might also be about the use of natural uh, colours and textures. Um, And within that idea, there's a colour theory that I think is really interesting. Uh, For me, as a designer over the years, you hear all these colour theories and they, they spin off into sort of spiritual dimensions that I go, okay, sort of switched off. So we use this idea called ecological valence theory that suggests that we use our own experiences in nature to evoke a positive emotional response. We've all had good experiences of nature Mm. at some point. So the suggestion is is that colours like blue or shades of blue remind us of cool, calm pools of water or clear skies. They're very calming and very relaxing. Our greens are more creative uh, and a little bit more energising. They remind us of the fresh shoots of spring. Uh, yellows are, are, are very uh, welcoming and warming. They remind us of the warmth of summer sunshine and ripe crops. And oranges and reds remind us of ripe fruits and berries. They're very, very energising and stimulating. And we're not suggesting here that people will overwhelm a colour, uh, a, a room with colour. But it is about using those colours in a similar proportion that we find them in nature to evoke an emotional response. And you kind of, you know, when I talk to designers about that, you go like... Yeah, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, I think put it that way. Yeah, Yeah. why not? Yeah, of course. You know, where do we draw our experience or our emotional response colours from if it's not from something that that unites us all, which is nature? And I do find it interesting that as technology becomes so ubiquitous in our lives, there are elements of it that are about not letting technology become the the, the world we live in. So the the more technology becomes part of our lives, the more we want to have a kind of cling on to a human experience Mm. of the world around us and not have some kind of future 
Terminator style scape of, of, of urbanized glass and chrome yeah. answering emails on your bathroom mirror yeah it's like well you could do it i'm sure but is that is that actually a good idea yeah yeah i mean you have you're in a neat position aren't you, you, you you're a high profile guy you're on tv you, you have a kind of platform to be able to push this kind of agenda as well do you, do you feel you, you that's part of something you need to do is to use the opportunities you have to you know evangelize this subject without sounding like I have a sort of god complex or anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i've got to say uh you know when i started off working in tv back in 1998 i recognized that tv gives you this platform mm. to stand up and talk about things that are important at the point that i started working on uh, bbc changing rooms if you yeah. remember that show you know we were getting eight million viewers so I made it my mission just to sort of try and drop in as many environmental issues or design ideas as I could. You know, whether it's using you know, LED or low energy bulbs or non-toxic paints or how we can upcycle or recycle things. Just drop in as many of those things. Most of them ended up on the cutting room floor, but occasionally they'd stay in. And you're like, great. Well, you know, I've talked about something that is a little bit more valuable than, you know, the cult of celebrity. Mm. Talked about, you know, just dropping an idea in. And then I remember my first sort of biophilic design outing was on uh, BBC DIY SOS for a lovely family uh, up in Sunderland. And uh, when the TV show came out, you know, I talked about biophilic design a, a lot in it and the different principles behind it. And then I remember sort of walking down the street in London and this scaffolder shouted from a building, Oi, mate, I love that biophilic design thing that you were talking about. It's like, great. You know, this guy's heard it. Then, you know, we're starting to get the message out there. And, you know, design is such a powerful tool and it really should be used as, as, a, as a tool for good. But DIY SOS is a really interesting example because that is about enhancing the lives of the people that mm-hmm. are involved in it. And obviously these are entertainment shows, but they obviously have a point of purpose to mm-hmm. them. Yeah. And if you are going in there with a concept that the whole point of it is to do just that, it is a, quite a platform. We've worked with Linda Barker sometimes, and I've bored her with this senselessness. I think changing rooms changed the way people view interior designs instantly. And it doesn't get the credit it deserves for that because it was basically a bit of a silly entertainment show. Yeah, it was. It was, it was quite pantomime. Really, yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. But it made suddenly people realise yeah. that you could paint a, one wall a different colour than the other three. You know? And it would have a dramatic impact. Yeah. And that you can do it. And it's kind of, you know, it did sort of make design quite accessible. You know, it came about with some of those more ubiquitous flat pack shops mm-hmm. you know so people could access design i think very often it was just a case of people looking at going don't like that i like that i like mm-hmm. this and, you know it was them kind of going oh now i know a bit more what i like and what i don't like mm-hmm. i was probably more on the don't like because i was a bit more challenging but you know that's okay that was fine it's better to be uh looked over than over but i think i think, <laughs> yeah, I think you can trace the huge choice available to the public now mm-hmm. right back to those moments yeah is if you look you know in, in the kitchen and bathroom world you know, the sheer amount of modular choice that you can get within those rooms now, I think you can trace right back to the education of the consumer yeah. through shows like that when they, when they were one of the biggest shows on TV. And yes, it was a bit daft, but it's kind of supposed to be. Yeah. But then that became Grand Design, so that became all these other shows that were much yeah. more about you know, looking behind this, you know, a bit more in depth of what design can do for people yeah. and how it can enhance their lives. And that's, that's one of the nice things about my experiences of working on the likes of DIY SOS is that we're bringing considered design to people who would never normally get their chance to experience it and people who are often in very dire situations for whom um, many aspects of their lives are just uh, lying around them you know and all we're really doing is just getting their house 
sorted you know and it just means you know they step out in the morning they're stepping out from somewhere that's ordered that works that's warm that doesn't cost them an arm and a leg they're stepping out in the morning they go and do whatever they have to do in the day and then they come back and it's somewhere just to welcome them to relax to restore them to connect them with their loved ones to give them a bit of peace and quiet you can hear all the things I'm talking about, about health and well-being. Yeah. It's not about, you know, giving somebody a bang up to date, trendy house. It's about recognizing just how important the home is to all of us, no matter how much money you've got, you know, uh, and why shouldn't everybody across the spectrum have some good design or space that just fits them like a glove. And that's what's wonderful is just seeing how great we can make people's homes in a relatively short amount of time, but also just bringing communities together to do something um, that, that has such value. Well, I can't top that, can I? We've got to end yeah. it there. But thank you very much, Oliver. That's been fascinating. Thank you for it's your time. It's been a total pleasure. That was Oliver Heath. A huge thanks to him. And as I said, that was recorded a year ago, but Biophilic Design has taken on such a whole new meaning and such relevance now as we navigate the longer-term impact of the coronavirus on how we live our lives and how we design our homes. So, so interesting. Normal service will resume next week with a brand new episode of the KBB Review Podcast, so don't forget to subscribe via your podcast app of choice to make sure you don't miss it. Simply search KBB Review or one word. See you next time.